0: Listener Production. Okay, are you recording?
1: Howdy, welcome along. Episode 31 of the Howie Games. Hope you're having a great time. Great to have you tuning in. By the way, on that very topic, we got some download numbers this week from our good friends at Podcast One, and we were completely blown away by the number of people that are now listening to the podcast. It makes me smile. So thanks to everyone who last week made the effort to recommend the Howie Games to a new listener. We really appreciate it. Truly we do. All right, this week's episode, (laughs) what a guru this bloke is. Some sports broadcasters are so good at what they do they become synonymous with their sport. Without their voice, their sport just doesn't seem the same. Think Richie Beno and cricket, Murray Walker and Formula One, and this week's guest, Phil Liggett and cycling.
0: He's locked onto his wheel now. This is going to be a formality.
1: How good is that? To listen to Phil call a cycling stage, often for over three hours, and he keeps it entertaining accurate and informative, for mine there's none better. And as you'll hear in this chat, I count myself really, really, truly fortunate to have sat next to Phil in the velodrome at the Athens Olympics and watched him call the great Anna Mears win an Olympic gold medal in the 500 metre time trial. Picture it, to sit next to the great man and watch him in full flight while Anna was winning Olympic gold medal, it is truly one of my fondest memories in sport. This episode was recorded in Melbourne earlier in the year just after Phil had finished working on the Herald Sun Tour. This chat covers all sorts of topics, to say the least, from bird-watching to shoveling elephant poo, true story, to meeting the Queen, sports commentary, and Phil's pretty forthright and really honest views on Lance Armstrong. This episode hopefully has something for everyone. And I reckon the only thing that Phil is better at than commentating cycling is telling stories. The man is a natural entertainer. Hope you love it. Here's Phil Liggett, MBE.
2: So
0: when you search and then you find, and know just where to go, and thoughts that once used to cloud your mind, you see clearly and now you know, mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie. I. Come on children, trod with me, we want to reach Mount Zionist.
1: Couldn't be more stoked to welcome to the Howie Games, Phil ah, Liggett. Phil, great to see you. You look fit, you look fighting, and, mate, I appreciate you giving me some of your time.
0: <laughs> well, it's always nice to chat uh, informally, shall we say.
1: Well, this is informal. This is like we're sitting at a pub having a beer. Um, <laughs> these things normally start at the start. You've just finished the, the Herald Sun Tour here yeah. in Australia. You've had a massive summer. When was the last time yeah. you were
0: home? Well, I was home for Christmas five days, but before that was October, <laughs> um, Trish and I, my wife, we celebrated our forty-fifth wedding anniversary. I think we've kept it going because we never see each other. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it was in last March, but I couldn't afford time out in March, so I I hired a bird guide. Him, his car, did the lot for us. We went through three countries bird watching. Started in Johannesburg, went up to the um, into Botswana, a place called Nata. Then we worked down the Caprivi Strip, which is full of history, of course, when the South Africans joined Namibia to try and keep out the invading uh, Angolans in the Congo and then we went uh, came back down the panhandle down the Delta and back home we were out for two, just over two weeks saw 323 species of bird of which 51 had never seen before which oh. is for me huge and then we still went to the farm we have a farm upon the Olifants River in on the borders with Mozambique and uh, Zimbabwe and uh, then we stayed there for the rest of the year came home for Christmas then came out here, and uh, today's my last day, which is very sad because, for some reason, I've been coming here doing this sort of trip for 20, 20 years now. Wow! I just I just love this trip this week, this last day of four weeks. So I landed on the first of January, should have been on the eve of the New Year. Oh! Allow my schedule was for two hours in the hotel to bring in the New Year with Jerry Ryan. Yep. And the plane was five hours late, so instead I put the light out in the hotel at quarter past four in the morning. And then uh, New Year's Day was dawned.
1: This is the life we live. And uh, you, yeah. just, you just covered topics there. This is, in theory, a sporting podcast. I could speak to you. We could make this a travel <laughs> podcast. And we could just speak about Africa, uh, where I've just spent some time for an hour and a half. But we'll, we'll start at the start. You've covered off a few topics there. So where 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 was it, uh, Phil League born? And what did your mum do?
0: Um, well, mum and dad was at sea all his life. And because of that, he was, play, at, he was at sea. He right? ran away to sea at 16. Did and he? he didn't come off the water until uh, the mid, his mid-50s. Uh, Mum was quite badly ill. She suffered ill health. I was growing up. She she had me late in life, uh, 46 years of age, which in those days was a huge gamble. Right. My sister was 18 years older than me because, as I say, Dad wasn't home too often, so he must have been lucky when he came <laughs> home one night and I popped out. And, um, and so we just, uh, I looked after Mum. I was more like uh, a minder as well. I was very close to Mum. And uh, Dad, I just didn't see him till he finally came off off the ocean. What did I he mean, do? What did he do? He was a first class saloon steward on the big boats, Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth. Right. Uh, but he was a, he was a, not a talkative man, so he never really explained. In those days, he was being a sort of a pioneer because he was sailing to here. He showed me bromide photographs in the fifties of the ship going under the Sydney Harbour Bridge, uh, and but he never really explained what his trips and the excitement that he must have seen he's a quiet guy but he obviously did a great job in the in the restaurant on on the first class saloon because all these parcels and food and stuff came at christmas time from all over the world from <laughs> uh, passengers who just loved his service but he never told us the story behind it. So I agree. the the town was called Bebbington, and it's on the Wirral, which is still the only place I would still love to live. I don't live there, I had to leave, become a journalist in London, etc. So
1: which direction are we heading from London uh, to, where we're, we're to Wirral?
0: Uh, well, the Wirral is the little bit that goes like a, a peninsula that sticks out between Liverpool and the mainland. Okay. And uh, we're just about, we're about 20K from Chester, which is a beautiful city. I always used to joke with the lads, if you wanted a rough bird, you went to Liverpool. If you wanted the one with a bit of class, you went to Chester.
1: You know I'm glad you said, because my <laughs> mum was born in Chester, and I was hoping Get you out. weren't going to say she was, and I was hoping you <laughs> weren't going to say it was the rough right <laughs> birds
0: from Chester. No, the, no, the Chester <laughs> girls had a bit of class, and it, but Chester's one of the most beautiful cities in the world to this day. It's got its wall, It's it goes back into Roman times. It's it's a fabulous place. Its Roman name is Diva. Yeah.
1: So... When was your first dealings with a bike? I yeah. spoke to Cadell Evans the other day and he told me he was a three-year-old and he can remember the specific bike.
0: Do you remember what your first uh, bike was? I can remember the first bike. It was a Raleigh Lenton and uh, it seemed enormous to get on a bike with 27-inch wheels <laughs> and and keep your balance on it. And I lived in the cul-de-sac, we lived in a bungalow. And I remember Mum was standing in the street watching to make sure I could stay upright. And I went up and down the road on it. But I was only—I was already a teenager. Um, I went throughout my school years to school on the bike, and I can remember so vividly. I was—I was late twice for school, and both was—it was on a Wednesday. And both times I was late, it was because it was the only day throughout my career at school I never rode the bike. I walked. Right. Big mistake. <laughs> right. I late both times. Other than that, I always went to school on the bike. That was my second school, not the not the kids' school, the baby school. What were you like at school? Um, what were your areas of expertise? Uh, well, as, it, as it turned out, uh, I pissed everybody off because I, I won the English prize. And I, uh, nobody expected me to win the English prize except me. And I remember the, when they gave me the book on Shakespeare, uh, I'm not, I, don't, I hate literature, um, but the prize was a book on Shakespeare. And uh, I'd noticed they'd ripped out the name of the guy who was a dead certainty to get it. A guy called Mike Reed, actually, all those years ago, I still remember his name. He's a nice guy, don't get me wrong. And they'd ripped the thing out and had to put a new sticker in the cover uh, to give me the prize because I got the biggest result at the exams. And... Uh, I remember the master saying, well, who's the shining boy in English? And I said, thank you, it's very nice, sir, thanks a lot. Uh, I thought, you should have more confidence in me. (laughs) But I was lucky, because I had to write a composition on on crustacean and shellfish. Well, I was a nut for the fishing business. And the other one was uh, locomotives and railways, and I was a complete train spotter. Were you? Oh, gosh, and still am. Right. Um, For my 70th birthday, my wife bought me a, 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 a steam driving lesson a gold star which meant i got to steer the loco for nearly 50 kilometers with the driver just watching it was the best experience of my life it was fantastic
1: so it sounds like if you're into something whether it be steam engines or cycling or birding or animals when you're into it i'm into it you're right Uh,
0: i don't have a lot of division but um I started bird-watching because I wanted to know what I was looking at, even on the Wirral. You'd see a blackbird, but okay, it's a blackbird. But other birds I didn't know, so I started to want to know, so I started bird-watching. Um, I was fishing because I loved the outdoors. I mean, my very first job when I left school was a zookeeper. Uh, and I used to ride to Chester Zoo on my bike, and Chester Zoo, one of the best zoos in Britain, and still is. It was the one that invented all the lane ways on canal boats, so he could go cruising through the, through the canals, looking at the animals, which are kept basically in the wild on the islands. What
1: was your job um, in the zoo?
0: I was just uh, shoveling shit. <laughs> And I had to go chasing all the animals I let out by mistake when I opened the back doors of the cages. They were over my shoulder and gone. I used to look after kangaroos, of course. I never thought one day I'd come and see them in the wild. And uh, and squirrels and stuff like that, and Kota Mundi little foxes. Um... I never got to, you never got to handle the dangerous stuff, they were specialised keepers with the snake pits and the crocodiles. Well, it sounds like
1: a good thing if you were letting them escape, mm. it's probably good that you weren't looking after the big boys. Uh,
0: well it probably was actually, yeah, and uh, I, I didn't do it for long because my ambition was to get some experience, but I wanted to be a zoologist, but you know there was absolutely no money in my family, and no car, no nothing, and dad was never there, mum was ill. And I had to be around, and so I couldn't go to university. Not that I, I'm sure I had the brain to go, but I guess anybody goes these days. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I went zookeeping with, and zoology went through the window because I couldn't afford to get the degree, and I had to work. And so I moved on from the zookeeping after hitting an elephant on my bike. So I rode to work every day, but I didn't know that before the public allowed in, uh, it probably still applies in most zoos. Many of the animals they let out. Uh, they don't let the lions out or the predators, but I mean, the elephant's a fantastic weeding machine. You take <laughs> him round the back and he'll shovel all those nettles in one hit. And so, round the back of the tea hut yep. was the Indian elephant with his keeper, uh, and the keepers are in love with their animals, by the way. Of course. They, they, they're, they're, they're kids. And the elephant was working away around the back of the tea hut. I zoom around on my bike, at the back of the elephant. Fell off, and the the keeper. I remember he pulled the ear of the elephant down and said, "Look at this silly side." And the elephant just trumpeted. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Anyway, my bite was bent. So, <laughs> so soon after I left, not for any reason other than uh, there was not. I was I was going to be shoveling shit for the rest of my life. That was basically it. So I uh, I took a job in an office, and from an office, a guy sat by me. And I trained him, and then he said, "You realise I'm not going to do this job." Forever, it's, uh, I'm passing through. I'm going to become uh, the personnel manager of a big company that's opening. He says, "And I like you, and I'd like to offer you a job when I get in position." That's what he did. So I well, became, What kind of office was it? Uh, I, that was a stocks and shares office, but uh, animal stocks and shares. It was called the British Extraction Company, and I used to be just a clerk, you know, handling all the sales from the farms to the people. How did you go? Of food. How did you go with food? a
1: sort of nine to five? It wasn't start. a problem,
0: actually. Uh, we used to start at quarter to nine. We finished at uh, quarter to five at night and took one hour for lunch. Uh, almost cycling was, was... I was starting to cycle. I was starting to race, but I wasn't racing just yet, but I was training hard. And um, I was only 18, so, yeah, I was racing. And so the guys in the office... I remember the first day I went into the office to work, and all the guys were saying, oh, you knew, yeah, yeah. Uh, what do you do? I said, oh, I just ride a bike. And they said, um, they just said, well, uh, do you smoke? I said, no. He, he said, we'll give you three weeks working here and you'll smoke. Of course, I never did, but they all did. And then this guy did move, did get the job in this big company, and he offered me a job as an assistant to the accountant of the company. So I went to college and David day release on the back of that, and I became an accountant. So I, I, even then, I was only 20 years of age, I was... Uh, I was saying to everybody, I'll be the most experienced pensioner in the business. I've done everything. And, <laughs> yes. and that, in fact, is the way it's turned out. I am the most experienced pensioner in the business. But then I went from there to um, the accountant who I got on very well with. Uh, he called me in the office one day and he said, look, he said, you're not going to be happy until you find out if you're a good cyclist or not and you want to go and live in Belgium. I said, yeah, I do. He says, we'll keep your job for a year. I said, hey, you can't do that. I said, uh, even though I'm only twenty one, uh, I don't think I'll ever come back. It's a backward step, Whatever the job was Nothing to do the job at all. I love the people love the job. And so I uh, I went to Belgium and left the company. I went back and visited, but I never went back. And I tried to make way as a pro. I tried to earn. a first got to earn a pro contract. It's tough out there. So what were you like on a bike? Well, I was okay. I, and I mean, uh, it was the only thing I could do. I absolutely hopeless at all sports. I mean, at cricket, I couldn't I, I wasn't a bad bowler, actually but I was hopeless at the game in rugby they threw me into touch instead of the ball because I was so light and um, that was never going to happen the only goal I scored in football was at 5 minutes to 4 and the school ends at 4 and the goalkeeper had gone home 5 minutes early and I kicked it from the centre spot and it went straight down the pitch and through the goal mouth Uh, so he'd gone out the bloody he'd gone home (laughs) so that's the only goal I ever claimed but I was never ball coordinated, that's the problem. And to this day, for example, I can't swim. I owned a boat for 30 years, but I made sure I never fell off the bugger. And um, I don't know really, I just got on a bike because it got me to places without a car mm. I would never have seen. We're only 25 kilometres from Wales, and the mountains, the Welsh mountains, are right there. Never seen them until I got a bike. And then I went on the bike, and then I saw these cyclists who were training, and I thought, I want to be like those guys. Joined a, a really class racing club, and uh, and the guys started to help me, and and I could do it. And so I, I, I quickly became a first category rider, which was the ultimate. You start as a third, mm-hmm. and then you work your way through by getting points in the races, and I got my first class license. Then I went to Belgium, and I thought everybody's saying you get roughed over in Belgium mate. the 200 rider fields, those guys just don't slow down and I remember starting my first race and there was over 200 bike riders that day and it was they call them commesses, but they race on circuits of about 20 kilometres and they do maybe 8, 9 laps whatever it is and about 120 kilometre races at my age it was and so uh first two laps I was right on the front of a long straight line of bike rides I couldn't see the back 200 riders you ride over those horrible roads with cobblestone shaken to death things fell off your bike you never knew you had on them you know and of course all everything's out my own pocket as well if it rained you have to throw your socks away because you'd never wash them white again and so on but when I was riding the race I thought what the what the hell are they, they talking about this is this is cool this is not difficult at all it's okay we're going pretty quick what I realized in Belgium is they just go faster and faster. And after five or six laps, we are, I couldn't believe it, but I got dropped by 150 bike riders. I just gradually went down the line of riders. I couldn't grab a wheel. And then on my own. And I looked up, I thought, what the hell happened? I I can't be dropped by 150 cyclists. It's impossible. And and I was. And so a guy had taken me out there who was English, but he lived out there for a long time. And he said, you were going well. I said, yeah, I said, I've just been dropped by the whole field. He said, yeah. He said, that's racing in Belgium. He said, you'll get better. And the second race I rode, I was ready for it, and I finished ninth, which was a, a great result. But there was not uh, 200 riders in that race, about 60 or 70, but I was ninth. And I didn't look back. I got a pro contract. Um, worth how much? Um, well, it's just a contract on the table. It's right. bike and a jersey over in Belgium, right. and then you prove your worth. <laughs> Nowadays, they're big, sophisticated teams. So you get a bike and a jumper yeah but i was racing at the same time as eddie Merckx, who was the most brilliant bike mm-hmm. rider and to me to this day was the best bike rider and eddie w- was already as an amateur he was a world champion and he had a good-looking wife he had a fast-moving sports car and this guy was an amateur cyclist at the moment they call him leaf ebbers they were in belgium and so uh, he used to arrive and take his bike out the boot of his mustang and and ride the race in verbi won them i never beat him i didn't know him uh, but I knew how good he was. And I got a pro-contract. I hadn't signed it. And I went back for the winter in Britain. And at the same time, I'd been writing articles about the British cyclist plight in Belgium. Of course, you won the English prize. Yeah, yeah, and I won the English prize, so I thought, I'll continue on talking too much and writing so much <laughs> and getting no money for it. But I, I, in Belgium, I was get, being paid. But it meant sitting at St. Peter's Station in Ghent on a Sunday night Ghent. in the days where you have to... Um, you have to book your call for a transfer charge and wait an hour and a half for the call to come through because London was paying and then I would dictate my story for the week and, uh, and where was it going to it was going to a magazine called Cycling Magazine it was based in Fleet Street Right. and uh, it was just a piece on on the racing in Belgium and whatever I picked up out of the French uh, not the French the Flemish newspapers and in those days Tom Simpson was our star and and so I was writing about Tom's ex- uh, thing as well Uh, But he was a top pro and then When I was into the winter months with my contract about to sign uh, The newspaper said asked me down for an interview if I was interested in looking at a job with them I didn't get the job, but the guy who got the job left within a week And they just rang me and said it's Friday if you're here at 8 o'clock Monday morning in London in Fleet Street You've got the job. I said wow that's a hell of a decision because I was about to go back to Belgium mm. and I'd taken temporary employment lifting uh, milk churns to build my backup. now uh, And I walked into personnel at Port Sunlight, at the Lord, uh, Lord Levy Hume's business. And I said, hey, I've got three uncles here who've put in 160 years service for you guys. Uh, I just want a temporary job if you got one and they said they put me in the uh, canteen carrying milk that's an aside and so anyway I was doing, going through all this that was the phone call actually came to the to the company and you're not supposed to take personal calls but the managers said there's a phone call over there for you better take it and that was the offer down by Monday and uh, you've got the job so I never signed the contract and the real reason and this is the only decision in business I've ever made in my life to this day uh, I went down there, and, and um, I didn't sign the contract, and the reason was because I couldn't beat Eddie Merckx. And I said to... Uh, and I, that, Eddie and I now are very good friends. But When I used to interview him as a full-time journalist and writer in the uh, 70s through to the 80s, then I started to ride with him through the Armstrong era. We travelled a lot, and we ride, rode these charity rides together. Mm. And I told him the story many times, and he just laughs. He said, well... But I was I was the bester, huh? and that's Eddie. Eddie is the most nicest man in.
1: So, so yeah. when you thought you would not go down the professional cycling path because mm. you didn't, I broke my heart. couldn't beat Eddie Merckx, yeah. did you have any idea about the effect that this bike was going to have on the sport and how good he was going to be, and you were comparing yeah. himself? You, yourself to possibly yeah, he, he the best was, of all time
0: he was total class, he was a world champion at 18 on the road as an amateur and then of course he won it again as a pro then he won five tours then oh, won that's six. what
1: I'm saying Phil, you, might, yeah. you won five tours of to Frances, maybe yeah. you sort of set your bar a little bit higher
0: <laughs> well, there yeah, I, I probably did but I could, just couldn't do what he could do and uh, and I couldn't see, well I thought that guy's going to earn money but am I going to earn money enough to make a career um, I mean even Eddie nowadays jokes about the money these guys make because he didn't make that sort of money and he was the very best uh, but he yeah, lives a pretty good life, believe me
1: So life's turned, yeah. obviously life's turned out for the yeah, best But do you ever did. look back and think Oh gee, I, I could have had more of a crack on the bike or um,
0: not? Oh I regretted it for a long time and right. In fact uh, the first thing they said to me When I went into the office The editor called me over and he said Now you realise you're no longer a cyclist You're writing about cycling But <laughs> you, pa- you've got to pack in racing That's going to hurt And I thought yeah right um, And then I didn't pack in racing And he turned a blind eye then he started getting letters uh, from fans, people, readers, saying that um, it's nice to see the magazine. At last, has got a cyclist on the staff who knows what he's writing about and can ride a bike. And so that's why he was saying nothing. And then one day he called, um, oh, called, me over, and he said, uh, "If you're late in on a Sunday night because of a bike race, you know," he said, "I'll sack you." And that's where it, that's where it stood. I was never late in. The only rule was I had to ride the top race of the weekend, which for me was getting harder and harder because there were long hours on the magazine. Mm. We always went to press Sunday through Monday. So I often slept on the mailbags through Sunday night, woke up and got on with the edit. And by Monday night, I was getting a bit tired. And Tuesdays and Thursdays, I used to race as a sponsor in South London. I used to ride races in South London. I lived in North London now. Uh, And at weekends, I was riding the hardest race of the lot. I used to get in the breakaways with guys I used to race with a couple of years earlier from the Liverpool area. And guys would want to rough me up in the breakaway because I was too knackered to work in a break. You know, with six top boys riding for England or something uh, is what they're aiming at. Me hanging on, and they'd come back and they'd give me a mouthful. Get up to the front and do some work. Sit in the bloody back, you know. And and I said I can't. I said I'm, I'm hanging in here. And then my mates had come up in the break who were Liverpudlians, and they would just say, "Eh, hey, leave him alone. He's writing the story. He's all right where he is. He's all right." And uh, and so I got the breakaway on my side and all sorts <laughs> like this. And it became quite uh, quite strange. But I could only do it for t- uh, two years because I got thinner and thinner. I was living alone, and of course, Beans on Toast was the highlight of my dinner. And, uh, <laughs> Beans on Toast? It's like a it? But the funny thing it is, it's a very nutritional Beans on Toast. It is. So, um, and I had to cook it myself, and I was up at six every morning travelling to the office, which I rode to, of course. It was uh, 15k, 20k to the office. And then coming back up Muswell Hill, it's a really steep climb coming home, so I was getting worn out just going to and from the office. And I was then, I was getting down to. Well, in stones, I was I was now down to nine stones, which is um, I don't know what is in kilo. Uh, let me just think. Uh, uh, ten stones is sixty-eight kilo. Right, so you're down. So a I, bit. I was getting down a 60. bit. So I was about sixty-five, maybe. Right. Uh, and for a man of my height, I was I turned sideways. I was disappearing. <laughs> I was really thin. I hear you. And in the end, I just uh, the, then the editor had a brilliant idea. He said. Um, Get the get the cycling record book off the shelf, he said, and break a record. I said, what? He said, we want more interest in this place-to-place record-breaking. Just choose a record, and and I'll give you one day off a week to train. <laughs> and he said, um, and we'll pay your expenses on the day. And, uh, and you can write the spread on what it's like to break a record. So I started doing that and I found this record in the books called Wantage to Winchester and Back, two towns uh, over in the sort of westish southwest of Britain. And uh, I trained for it. How far was it? Uh, it was 80 miles.
1: I so say you had to beat the time in the uh, book.
0: Yes, right. and uh, set it. And so, oh shit, I was going great. I was nine minutes up and only <laughs> five miles to go. And then I hit the wall. I got the record by one minute, 40 seconds, but I was nine minutes up with So that. you
1: lost seven and a half yeah. minutes over the last uh, five minutes? I was
0: hardly riding at all. <laughs> I was hardly moving. And I'd arranged in the pub to give the timekeepers and the officials um, a pub lunch, and I never went in that pub. They did. I sat on the car park floor with the bucket between my legs, being sick for an uh, hour and a half after the race was over. I never got inside the pub at all and uh... but i got the record did and it appeared in the instinct. article
1: did did you write in the article it's, Oh yes. your oh yeah and?
0: yeah and i didn't write the headline and the headline was record breaking is easy <laughs> <laughs> i was dead on my feet but it worked everybody around britain started getting going for big records like land's end john of groats london edinburgh the real big records mm. and my record stood for 10 years there's a couple of top cyclists went for it and didn't get it and then the guy who got it I, I actually presented him with a certificate 10 years later, named John Woodburn. He was a brilliant bike rider. And I said, John, it, it really pains me to give you this certificate. I said, because you've stolen my record. And he just looked at me and he said, it was a good time you did. He said, I only just got it. And I thought that was a big compliment because yeah. Wood, Woody was a great bike rider. And he, and he, he said that. So. so that was my claim to fame. Then I stopped cycling. Uh, I didn't stop riding. I got a few heart flutters uh, after I stopped and I went to my doctors who knew me as a cyclist and he said, have you packed in? I said, yeah. He said, when did you stop? I said, oh, about six months ago. He said, well, when you leave this office, he said, get back on your bike. He said, because your heart's been built up as a cyclist. It's a muscle and it's bigger than normal in most people's hearts. He says, and it can't cope with the slow-moving body. (laughs) Get out and give it some effort. And he stopped. Two bike rides and those flutters stopped. And you're still riding today? And I'm still alive today.
1: And still riding today?
0: I am still riding. I've had a good session here. I've done 500k while I've been here. 500k? Which to me is enormous um, because I haven't ridden a bike much since last September. Uh, but the weather's been so nice here mm. and I've been slipping out. I try to avoid the riders because uh, the fans would love to ride with me. Mm. But the fact is they want to talk all the time. And i it's a one-way conversation when I'm on the bike. I don't want to talk. I want to actually be out and about thinking and enjoying the countryside. I mean on the bike I was up in Noosa for three days break between the racing and by myself I went out. Went down, I just go down roads, I don't know where they go and sometimes the cul-de-sacs after three miles or they they change to gravel. So I come back and go another way. And I went past this family of kangaroos, a big buck and a female and a youngster which was looking after itself. And they just looked at me as I went past, thought, what the hell is he doing on this bike? Because they never freaked at all, mm. and they were two feet from the edge of the road. Well, maybe
1: they sensed your mm. uh, zoo keeping abilities.
0: I wonder, in the Past.
1: I and wonder. Thought, oh, this bike knows. Yeah. He's got us yeah. all sus. <laughs> Next week on the Howie Games, a real treat for footy fans because the original idea behind this podcast was to hopefully inspire and motivate the audience and try and explain to people just what is required to reach the top. Chris Judd epitomises this. He's a two-time Brownline medalist and premiership player in the AFL and in many people's eyes, Chris was the player of his generation. From the outside, Chris Judd was one of those people that seemed to just be so naturally talented that he was always destined for something special. However, the truth behind his success is something completely different. This is a man that got to the top by working harder than anyone else.
2: When I was, this year, when I was 10 or 11, the old man who did quite a lot of athletics at school and and was a pretty good middle distance runner said, well, do you want to have a crack at actually training for it? Because I'd never trained for it. And a lot of these kids were already training, you know, properly. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, that's a good idea. So we trained every night for a month, um which is too much. That's not really how you should train as a kid. Um, and we do either every day, sometimes it'd be early in the morning before school. Sometimes it'd be at night at the track. and we train every day for a month, had a couple of days off and then ran the States. And in, in that time frame, I improved my time by 12 seconds, which is a huge amount in a month <laughs> my word you know? is. and, uh, and won the States, won the state championships. Um, so just at a, such a young age to get reinforcement that if you do the work and you plan for something, the benefits will come, uh, was really useful. It was interesting, in that state, state final, the, the favourite who was meant to win fell over sort of during the race. Um, I, I wonder if the lesson would have stayed as strong if he had ended up winning the race like he probably should have if he stayed on his feet. You, um, you didn't do a sort of, was it?
1: Clark and Land, <laughs> you, you, you didn't stop and a chance. help him up, Juddie. Not Juddy? a chance. Nah. Right, just tried just tried. spiked him as just you went past. Just gave him a little
2: cupcake as, a, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as I ran past.
1: That's Chris Judd. Next week on the Howie Games. Now, time now to go back to Phil Liggett It's an amazing thing, Phil. And I was uh, I was thinking about it on the drive up this morning mm. from Barwon Heads, which you would have been in not long ago. Yeah, I know Kadova, Barwon Heads Kadova. well. Cadell's mm. fantastic race. And it, it, when you think about um, Formula One, you think yes. about Murray Walker. Yeah, and I about? know
0: Murray. And he's a lovely man. And
1: yeah. you think about cricket in this part of the world, and around the world, you think about Richie Benno. when you yeah. think about cycling, yeah. your name is synonymous with the sport, which is
0: a bloody fit it fantastic is, thing,
1: and right? um like that when you think Tour de France, I think a couple of cyclists, and I think Phil Liggett, hmm. which to be tied to such a prestigious, wonderful thing must be fantastic.
0: It is, and th- I think is like when you do anything, you don't appreciate it yourself. I mean, I know Murray and uh, I was at the Australian Embassy a few years back when Murray's book had just come out and he'd just stopped about a year into his retirement. And I sat with him and uh, Jack Brabham and the two great raconteurs. And Jack was deaf. Uh, But Murray said, he said, just watch out for Jack, he says. He says he's deaf but watch his face change when, when you start talking and you'll see that small f- smile on his face. He's not deaf at all, he said. "And he said, But Murray was fantastic. And I said to him, I said, do you miss commentating, Murray? Oh, he said, you won't believe how much I miss commentating. Um, he said, but my book's done pretty well. They've sold over half a million copies. They've asked me to write another one. <laughs> I said, don't write another one. The sequels never work. Mm. Enjoy the glory of the one you've done. Uh, absolutely charming guy. And his charm, of course, was to just... Being part of the people, and when I commentate, that's what I feel part of the people. I'm a real superstar in, in Australia. It sounds very conceited, but I'm stopped every minute of the day by people, not by just cyclists, but mm. by people. If I got a, a dollar for every time I have my photograph taken in these last six weeks, <laughs> I'd be pretty rich. <laughs> um, but the, each one tells me a story. The guy say, "I was, I was." 11 years of age when I started listening to you on the television or the wife will say, it's your fault I stay awake all night or I gave birth and my baby's been good ever since because your voice is so soothing and when I was watching on the tour. and it, They've all got stories. What, and,
1: what did I say when I yeah. walked in you here? That we were together at Athens. That's right. And you had a spare spot next to you in the commentary box and I was a very young man. You said, listen, there's no one... Uh, sitting beside me, why don't you come mm. watch the cycling tonight? And I watched you and listened to you while you called Anna Mears win a With gold medal in Athens. And I was right beside you, and, and it, it sticks in my mind. Yeah, and it's yes, the first thing I said to you today. It
0: is, it is, and it was. And um, the thing is, I feel like I'm one of the guys or one of the girls, one of the people. I don't feel in any way a celebrity or a star. It's uh, they make me feel it when they start making a big fuss, but but I really don't. I mean, when the Queen gave me a medal on the, the New Year's Honours List in '05, The letter comes about three or four months before because they don't want you to tell anyone they said if you were to be nominated would you accept and the reason they did ask you would you accept is because the beatles sent their medals back in the 60s did they yeah uh, there was a bit of a protest uh, for whatever it was at the time so now they ask you and if you say you wouldn't accept then of course you, that's it you don't get it <clears throat> but if uh, you say you will they do warn you that uh, you won't hear anymore and it may never happen oh. <clears throat> so i remember the letter coming it came from 10 Downing street And it's a very cheap letterhead, it's just a little bit of white embossed, you've got to really struggle to see the address, never mind anything else. There's no logos on it at all. And so I said to my wife, uh, when I opened the mail that morning, I was standing in the kitchen, I said, listen to this, somebody's taking the piss. Because I thought it was a joke.
1: Taking the piss. I
0: thought it was a joke. They were saying that if you were to be given an honour, would you accept it? If so, please fill out the forms and return. Uh, please do not tell anybody about it. Uh, and you, uh, once the announcement is made, should it ever be made, you'll be, you'll no doubt receive press calls. This is what you should say. And anyway, it happened. So I got the MBE, which uh, to this day I call I call it mountain biking expert. <laughs> <laughs> which i'm not and uh so you met the queen i met the queen she was lovely was she ah oh, i couldn't well, believe well, it obviously all sorts of protocol and all. Sorts oh yes big protocol and uh, i went by cab and they must have sent the oldest cab ever to go through the gates of <laughs> buckingham palace and um you weren't late were you uh, no no i was on time and it was it was a i think it was in the june i got the award and in the november i went to the actual palace and got the medal and you're allowed to take two two guests of course So i would take my wife and i took my niece and uh, three guests two guests and your wife and so i got there and it was a buckingham palace and it was a it was a fantastic occasion but as you go into the palace you face with these huge stairs, uh, and um, my wife had been to the palace because uh, she was an olympic ice skater back in the 60s she skated in grenoble and uh, so she'd been to the palace as an ex-olympian i'd never been to the palace so we get to the through the doors and it goes uh, recipients to the left guests to the right so we're split up straight away and i'm shuffled into a room thinking well at least there'll be a glass of wine of course there's no wine at all there's orange juice and coffee and we're all bundled into the same room from the nights down to the uh, lowest awards and then this guy walks in huge guy with all his medals and sashes on and he walks in with a great step steams through the doors you know morning everybody anybody been to buck house before no hands go up at all. He says, you're a miserable lot. I know we charge in September, but you can still come. <laughs> and he said, well, you're all obviously very famous, he said, so let's enjoy the day because today you're very lucky. Her Majesty will be actually giving you the award. Now, he says, uh, normally you call her Her Majesty. He says, we don't do that at these occasions. He said, you just call her ma'am, and, uh, as in spam. Not mom, as in sma'am. Right. OK, got that, right. And he says, uh, if... Um, he He said, if you're a lady, you curtsy, if you're a gentleman, you bow. He says, you'll walk straight up, right angles, turn left, bow or curtsy, then go forward to her majesty. Now remember, she's only little, don't stop short, she won't be able to reach you to shake your hand and he said she will ask you a question do not give your life story in response she has a lot of people (laughs) and he was like this; he was hilariously funny then he just said any questions and this lady by me who had a huge wide hat on she was getting honour for her services to the community of where she lived and she said well yeah I've got a question she said is there any possibility you could show me how to curtsy he looked, he said, you're taking the piss, aren't you, madam? <laughs> no, she said, no, no, I really like, I don't want to make a mistake. He said, well, it doesn't matter whether you put your right leg in front of your left leg or your left leg in front of your right leg. He said, both are acceptable. He says, well, let me give you a word of advice. Don't go down too low because I've known them never to come back. <laughs> He was very funny, and of course, when I got the, the, uh, I met the Queen, she she just simply said, this cycling's getting very popular, isn't it? I said, yes, ma'am, it is. Get off next. So <laughs> oh, I, that was it. I was out round the back door, but when I went round the back door, uh, they box your medal for you, which the Queen had pinned on your lapel. It's a beautiful medal, actually. And, um, and then the guys and the girls round the back said, hey, how did you get this job in television? He said, everybody in the palace watches you on the telly. I said, what? I couldn't believe I was... Anybody would watch me on television in Buckingham Palace. He said, no. He said, how did you get the job? And they wanted to talk for hours around the back of the curtains there. And I was supposed to get out into the auditorium and sit down and wait, which we did in the end. But... I, I, I see myself as, as one of the people, and I don't change.
1: So when were you first on telly? What was a first television report or commentary uh, you did?
0: Yeah, well, I told you earlier, I, I, I never asked for a job in my life, and it's true. Once I, I was offered that job in Fleet Street, mm-hmm. the only decision I made was never to turn pro. And from Fleet Street, I was offered a job as organiser of the Milk Race, which is the Tour of Britain, which I took. And then I became a freelance journalist. Automatically, I wrote for the national papers for a while. And during that period, I saw a microphone. I picked it up at the race finishes because nobody was telling anybody what they were watching. Mm. And that was—I never got paid for those jobs. And the BBC had heard me, and, and just—I did a little stringer jobs for the BBC radio, uh, and got got thirty pounds. I thought, gee, this is great money. This and then um then i got uh, a guy who was doing the television commentary for itv guy called david saunders said would i like to go on the tour de france in 1973 it was i said would i yes he said well look he said i need a driver for the car i'm doing the tv commentary for itv he said i can't give you any uh, any any money but i'll certainly cover your expenses i said i'm in i've got plenty of freelance work anyway so i made money that way and so I became a driver on the tour with David. Never seen the tour, and what an experience! And then I, I remember going home in, at the end of the second year in '74. And I said to my wife, "I said, uh, you won't believe it, but there's some old buggers on that race who've done more than forty years." I said, "You'll never see me there. This year's my forty-fifth. <laughs> Can you believe it?" "Yeah, you're the old bugger." Yeah, "Now I'm the old bugger." And uh, unfortunately, and David became a close David and I were so friendly. We did everything together. He was—I'll be honest—I didn't think he was a great commentator. Uh, everybody had a brilliant voice and 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 he, he got the sport on television and the people at itv loved him anyway we did parry nice together in the march of 78
1: you're still driving at this stage?
0: Or? yeah yeah and we, so now we expanded his coverage so so you haven't commentated um, at all at this point no not at all right. no not at all i was still writing and i was driving david I, I sat by him on the tv but i was definitely not working i couldn't in, I got a little bit agitated sometimes. I either got the riders wrong or he didn't call with the excitement I would like to have heard, but he was the boss and I was the driver and that's the way it was, that's the way it stayed. And we had good times together. And then in the March of 78, we did Paris-Nice, which is the race to the sun starts on the outskirts of paris in the usually in the ice and cold finishes on nice in lovely weather uh, and, and nice in march you have these lovely yellow mimosa flowers mm. it's like the daffodils in britain it's spring has come and everybody's in good mood and it's fabulous anyway two days out david got a big offer from itv uh, to do the program called superstars this was a huge leg up the ladder for david on television so he said oh what can i do because he wrote for the daily telegraph and of course his name was in there and he had stories to write on Panish. and he said could he go back and do superstars and would i write the stories in his name for the telegraph which i did of course and uh, and then i was left to drive the car back from nice which is a long way it's 12 hours to the boat at calais over the boat get back home which is what i did and uh, and his weekend went well i spoke to him i said david i'm back he says well You shouldn't be back, he said. You've driven too long without getting any rest. Um, I said, Well, let me just give you the car back. And so I went to London and he bought me a little present because he'd had a great weekend calling the uh, superstars. And his articles had gone into the paper, okay, no worries. They didn't know. I just said I was calling on behalf of David Saunders, dictated his story, which I'd written. And um, by the time I got home, David was dead. His car, he crashed the car to this day it was never explained, it, the car was not speeding, it was on the banks of the te- River Thames in central London, it, it spun for some reason and it, the car was hardly damaged but it struck a lamppost down the, by where his head was, it hit his head and he mm-hmm. killed him. Uh, three weeks later police car did exactly the same thing, no damage at all, no injury and the police couldn't explain why they crashed either. So it was never answered but the fact was Davy was dead, I just sat in the bathroom and cried and... Uh, I just, I immediately, BBC Radio called me and said, would I do it? We had a big, high-level high sports slot in those days. Quarter to seven sports news for 15 minutes on BBC. And they asked me, would I go on at quarter to seven and, and do an obituary on David, which I did. And, uh, and then a week went by and then I got a phone call from television. And they said, look, we always wanted you to work on TV. There was never a budget for two commentators. Um, David's gone. He'd love you to work. We're not going to advertise the job and believe you. We've had a lot of applicants mm. without advertising it because a lot of guys were would have loved David's job. Mm. And they said, if um, if you want the job, done deal. Uh, I said, well, I don't know what to say really. I said, well, of course I want the job. But they said, good. They said, well, um, it's a live. You're going to learn the hard way how to commentate because we're doing a live show from Crystal Palace in April. And uh, well, I knew that it was on TV because I was the organizer of the race. <laughs> I had 88 top professionals, there, including the Tour de France winner. And I was just the organizer. I was doing it for Mike Barrett, the boxing promoter. Mm. <clears throat> and I, uh, <clears throat> I went to I went to the palace. I did the job. And uh, I was up a Crow's Nest, up a lamppost, so I could see everything. And that's where the studio was, up, up a lamppost. And I remember sitting down in the studio because I, I learned then that nobody tells you how to do TV. <laughs> And so I sat Never there, two monitors, and a, a telephone, and a box, and I'm up a ladder, 50 feet in the sky. Then this guy comes up the ladder. He goes, hello. I said, hi. He said, everything all right? Uh, well, I said, yeah, fine, just don't know what to do. What? this is your first time? I said, yeah. This is a, the guy we now know as the floor manager. He says, well, you've got two televisions here, we call them monitors. He says, when the pictures on both are exactly the same, you're live. He said if you want to cough or swear press that red button they won't hear you and he said other than that enjoy it good luck and, and that was him gone <laughs> i thought gee and then of course the, we were live into this program called world of sport on the saturday afternoon well watch program and they usually we usually come off the wrestling and during the ad break the phone rings and i picked the phone up and he goes um hello old son he said Dickie Davies here Dickie Davies talking to me This guy was such an icon in Britain at the time mm. Top host And uh, I said Dickie hi He said good luck he said I'll give you a big rap when I come across to you After the ads He said all you got to do Phil Is remember why you got the job I said Dickie I've no idea why I got the job <laughs> He says because they like you He says don't change when you go on television That was the best tip he ever got You know people try to change their accent mm. Or they try to be posh Um, they they get too stiff and that was the best advice I've ever gotten I've told it to the guys who work with me because I get lots of various analysts uh, Mm. I say just be yourself when you start talking just forget the viewers out there entertain them and that's what I've tried to do ever since and I remember uh, I didn't think I'd done a great commentary but I also found that unless you make a real cock up they don't sack you either And, uh, and gradually the sport got more and more popular and then live every day on the Tour de France and the Olympics came, I did the Moscow Games in 1980 for ITV, 84 for BBC in Los Angeles. and Now I've done 15 Olympic Games, I've done winter sports as well, and, and I've had a good life. Yeah. But it's, it's all. Uh, that's the only advice I got off Dickie, was just be yourself.
1: It's funny you say that about media that you don't get any training, you don't know you're going any good until you get the next job up or till yeah. you get the arse. So, so, watching yeah. as a commentator who, who, you know, I've just been doing obviously a lot of cricket and stuff like mm. that, but now whenever you watch the tour, The obvious question is, how the bloody hell does that bloke figure out who is who? And I'm sure you Uh, get asked that question a million times. But as a commentator, I I call a game of footy. There's 36 blokes out on the ground. And there's a fair bit of work involved making sure you know who those guys are. And you're obviously immersed in it. But, gee, you must have to be on your toes... At those vital moments
0: yeah and the first race of the year freaks me out because yeah. all the team colors have changed Correct. usually and the, for some reason every year the, this year it's currently your, everybody's got blue jerseys uh, yeah. t- nobody gets together and but that's the way it is. some years it's yellow some years it's black but the, hey it's really difficult to so work day one's like, oh, yeah geez. it's a nightmare and so what i do on a uh, day one of a, of a bike race if it's a big race with the world tour riders where well, i know most of them um i start uh, listing all the guys who can win the stage so if, the, if that team guy gets to the front, it's 90% sure of it's a sprint, it's this fella, uh, and he'll be the survivor. And so on the first stage, you, you can struggle, you can get caught, but I've been pretty lucky. It's, um, and riding styles, but in the old days, they didn't wear crash helmets or wear sunglasses. Mm. They just rode the bike. Nowadays, crash helmets are compulsory and everybody wears sunglasses. And so now you've got to look for other clues. Sometimes the shoe manufacturers give a guy a red pearly shoes or blue pearly shoes. That's a good clue as to who he is. And now we've got uh, a set of twins race for Britain and are on the top team. The Yates brothers, Simon and Adam. Hell, well, we have to tell them to change different sunglasses. You wear white and you wear black because we haven't a clue. These guys are identical. And they're both very, very good bike riders. And so uh, it's a nightmare.
1: Uh, you've got a, a serious database. In fact, I was speaking to I Matty, Matty yeah. Keenan, who oh, yeah. does a lot with you, and yeah. he, he was telling me that your database gets updated while you're still on air. Uh, that's that's correct. how specific you are with it.
0: It's correct. Even yesterday, as, a, as the winner crossed the line, I called up his name, Ian Stannard. it was, typed in one victory, Sun Tour Stage 4, uh, February. It's already in. Every uh, time I close the lid, all the results are in for the day. And even before you just came in, I just done all the results of coming out of France and Spain, and put those in.
1: Right.
0: If it's a if it's a stage race, I put the first three in. If it's a one day race, I just put the winners in. Is it if if ob- it's a classic race, I put the first ten in.
1: Is it an obsession? Do you have an obsession?
0: Yeah, I guess it is because you know I mentioned a long time ago now in this conversation about being an accountant. Yeah. Well, I was a statistical accountant, so what I had to do was uh, get the raw product and calculate what they put in to make that product and how much it cost and come up with a cost price figure for the wholesale sale of the product. When it was finished, it was foam. And I used to go to the scientists and say, well, how much of this chemical did you use? How much of that? And i go back and evaluate the cost. We came up with an answer, and that's how much they sold the foam for. And I'm an absolute nutter for figures. I devised a board game on cycling just because I could. Did you? Yeah, I mean, I'm, we used to save labels off all the Heinz products, baked beans and pork sausage, and, and we used to use it as money and they all were given monetary value we used to play cards and bet with bean labels um and we just i just love fig, facts and figures and uh, for example you know 19 uh, of the 21 youngest riders in the sun tour this last week uh, come from australia it's a figure that worked out and it's a great fact because mm. that just shows you the strength and depth now in this country of young bike riders and they rode very very well So I like figures and I I like to work things out, you know.
1: Quick interruption for a moment, if you missed last week's episode of the Howie Games, please go back and have a listen. It was the second of a two-part job with Formula One driver Mark Webber, and I love the fact that so many people sent messages to honestly say they got no interest in motorsport, but they started listening to Mark and they really enjoyed what he had to say. It's fantastic. Now, Mark Webber is a man that does not pull any punches, especially when it comes to discussing his former teammate, Sebastian Vettel.
2: We didn't get on mate. You know we didn't we didn't get on because it was you know it was showing your hand it was you know, socially impossible to you, know, you can't go out and talk about you know family
1: life and weather and what's going on and, and how's everything going it's it is it is tricky um even competitions down to you know helicopters from the track well i've got the chopper before you or whatever you know there was like it just constantly went on well why is he in the first one why i'm in the second one well, no, whatever so you wanted to try and you know wear things down and and um you know in meetings take the headset off when he when he spoke, because I didn't really value what he said, or vice versa, he'd do tricks for me. It was constant mind games on, and then we haven't even woven the media in there in terms of how all that
2: went. So, wow. there's so many dynamics.
1: Check out Mark Webber in episodes 29 and 30. By the way, absolutely loving all the social media messages at Mark Howard03 on Twitter and Facebook and the emails we're getting at the Howie Games at hotmail.com. That's the Howie Games at hotmail.com really enjoy all the guest suggestions and especially the messages about people where they're listening from all sorts of weird and wonderful places so good day to Jeff who emailed during the week to say he is listening in Guam Guam Jeffrey yeah it's been in the news a little bit lately so Jeff stay safe all right before we get back to Phil for those that love the Socceroos like I do, yeah, you're probably all a little bit flat today after they failed to qualify directly through to the World Cup thanks to Saudi Arabia beating Japan 1-0. Don't worry, I've got faith they will be OK in the upcoming Eliminators. The press did give Ange Postacoglu a fair bit of stick, or, as the Pickle and Big Penguin would call Ange... Mr
2: Postacoglu. Mr Postacoglu. Goggy Louie. Is that
1: actually how you say it? Inge. Mr Pogalop. Mr <laughs> Pogalop. Ange Postacoglu, He's one of the nicest chaps you'll ever meet. I've got no doubt he's the right man for the job. And if you didn't hear him in episode 12 of the Howie Games, the coach was very different in that episode to the man you often hear in press conferences.
2: The the goal now is to win one because I just think... I mean, you spoke about, you know, Cathy Freeman and, and I, I, I kind of related also to the America's Cup. There was a time where you say, well... You know, no other country can really win an America's Cup. Mm. Australia certainly can't win an America's Cup. I can imagine Kathy Freeman as a young Aboriginal girl, no one told her you could win an Olympic gold medal. It's just out of the world, out of this world. And I think the World Cup's the same. I think, you know, at this, we sit here and we say we can't win a World Cup. Well, we can, but imagine what it would do for us as a nation if we did win it.
1: That was Ange Postacoglu in Episode 12. All right, let's get back to film. So to be elite at what you do, as you say, you never, you never get any... Tips along the way, what's been your biggest cock-up, Phil? What's been
0: your biggest cock-up on air? I honestly, I've got nothing that really stands out. I mean, I did a video once on Sean Kelly and Stephen Roach and nobody picked it up and the video sold quite a few copies, but it was Sean Roach and Stephen Kelly. (laughs) And I never realised it and nobody wrote about it (laughs) until one day, I'm playing it through at home, I said, what did I say? (laughs) I never got one letter of complaint or comment. And, and I actually said that on the video because those are the two most famous Irish cyclists ever to ever to face the earth.
1: So you've never got a stage winner well, wrong?
0: Uh, yeah, I've got. I've called a stage winners wrong. Right. Um,
1: so how do you back uh, up with
0: that? Well, I think if you're honest with your fans, then yeah. they know you're human, um, so I try not to be too dogmatic. Uh, although there was a guy, and I can't remember his name, an Italian guy, and I insisted it was him with Paul Sherman. He said, No, it's not him. He hasn't won. I said, Yes, he has. We're on air. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, uh, oh, what the hell was his name? Zanelli. Zanelli was his name. And I met him years later, and we, we told him the story. He, he fell about laughing because <laughs> he retired and became a manager of a big team. Um, but uh, no, I've never had a real, real. A cock up. Okay. But you do make mistakes, I'll obviously. Touch wood, touch wood. wood. yes, won't please. Get any more. So Armstrong has been holding everything under those legs till the last climb, and now he has launched the attack. He wants to win it out, as We knew that. We were just not too sure he had it in him.
1: I guess watching the tour for me, um, in my favourite moments, and it, oh, it's strange in a way looking back now, but my favourite moments were call were when you were calling Armstrong and he was doing what he was doing yep. and he was dancing in the pedals and all those things. Mm. And he obviously came out on, on Oprah of all things. And I remember I was away, yep. I was sitting in a hotel. I was away um, too, I was here. Right. In Adelaide. And I, I was still, the week before on radio when that announced mm. what was going to happen, I remember defending him saying, no, nah, he, he won't, have. it'll be okay because you want yep. to believe. Yeah. So I remember my stomach, it sank when i heard him that first question from oprah and it was just bang 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 and he said i've done this i've done this i've done this did you ever take banned substances to enhance your cycling performance
0: yes yes or no was one of those banned substances epo yes did you ever blood dope or use blood transfusions to enhance your
1: cycling performance
0: yes Yes, 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 yeah.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Mm. My heart sunk. What did yours do?
0: Oh, I just stared blankly at the television. Like you couldn't Um, believe it. I was in the Hilton Hotel in in Adelaide. Right. I'd gone for the start of the tour Down Under. And when I arrived at the hotel, because it was known he was going to make an announcement, I thought a film star had arrived behind me Mm. because there was a block of camera crews and journalists and the, the driver of the car said shall i take you around the back i said why he said those people are for you they want to they're going to interview you and jump on you so i said no i said well, let's go so i opened the door and i couldn't get out of the car they were straight in with the cameras their tripods and everything all about uh, what do you think now about lance armstrong yeah. and what could i say he hasn't said anything yet mm. we all guessed what he was going to say but he hadn't said anything so then we got rid of the, all the press, and then they, they arranged a, a, a TV in a big lounge downstairs, all the press to watch the announcement. And the management uh, hotel offered me a private room uh, away from the crews who we were gonna only want to take shots of me, because everybody thought I was in bed with Lance Armstrong, which was absolutely untrue, but I was, I was uh, doing a lot of work with Lance Armstrong. Uh, but through other people, not through Lance. I never earned a penny off Lance. But I I like the guy, and uh, I liked him as a work, work-like person. You you never know Lance Armstrong. Nobody knows Lance Armstrong. He's not a particularly personable character at all. Uh, my wife, for example, didn't like him. And uh, But I admired what he was doing. And so I, I was just sat on the television and watched with a couple of the organisation. And I uh, oh, shit. I mean, what do we do? Because I once said, um, if... if uh, if he ever gets found positive for taking drugs, I think I'll pack it in. And I still, to this day, get mails. In fact, some guy wrote a column in uh, in Adelaide this year saying, you said you give up, Phil, now just go. Um, they don't forget. No. But the fact is I can't go because, as, as is always the case, I've got contracts years in advance and I can't walk out of the contract. But... It, uh, I, I took a, a real set back. I mean, I remember I went bird-watching near my house on this uh, wetland and the phone rang. It was a journalist from the Sunday Telegraph. He wanted to talk. I said, well, let's talk. So I talked to him. But the article was pretty damning when when it came out on the sunday damning on you yeah just because i was uh, was i really fooled that their feeling was i knew everything i knew absolutely nothing
1: but surely you you weren't you you've never been there as the special comments man you're a caller yeah. so you're,
0: you're i was a caller what you're seeing. um what happened was in uh, oh, in a race strange. well in the, in the uh, about 2002 when lance was now pretty famous uh, I was in the hotel during the Tour de France and Lance came running out of a room because we don't speak to Lance on the tour. And he came running out and I thought he was going to hit me for something so maybe he didn't like the commentary he had just done. Or something. Mm. And he goes, hey. I said, hi Lance, what do you want? Um, Did you get a letter off a guy in Calgary in Canada? I said, yeah, I got an email. I said, I thought it was a joke. And this guy had said, Lance had asked for me to do this gig in Calgary to raise money for cancer. And, um, and I thought it was a joke and I, I just made an excuse and said I can't make it it was in September and we're in July now and so uh, Lance says no I, I, that's exactly what I said he said uh, I said well I've, I've turned it down Lance man you shouldn't have turned it down I don't like the guy they use on the mic and so I, I asked for you I said well and I'd never spoken one word to Lance throughout all his career Never would. Uh, no, really, I've met him, but I've been, he, Lance is not the guy to go out for dinner with or have a drink with. He, even on these gigs, I never saw him after I'd done the well, gig. Because
1: he's such an intense top operator? He just got,
0: he's got his little band of people around him, okay. and that's it. They go right. to the bedroom, drink good wine, forget the rest. Yeah. Uh, even at the gigs, he came in a dark-windowed car, and as soon as the job was done, he was back and gone. He was never hanging around. and so, uh, But people just assumed I was his guiding light. And, uh, and so I, I wrote back to this chap who turned out to be a really genuine guy at the end of the day in Calgary, and we are friends now, and I just said, um, I said, Joe, to, to the guy, I said, um, apparently what he said was absolutely true. I said, look, I'm available if you want me. And they paid me a few thousand bucks. Um, but everybody who rode with us, to, I rode as well, and it was a functions, and I rode. And I said... Um, we, everybody who rode had to pay a minimum of twenty-five thousand dollars to ride with us, and some guys oh. paid seventy-five thousand. One guy paid seventy-five thousand. He was the big money spinner. He was a brain surgeon, and so we gave him a yellow jersey to ride in. One of Lance's yellow jerseys, and he, they gave it to him because the biggest money earner. The second got the green jersey, and then we gave a polka dot jersey. Mm. And we raised two and a half million dollars on two rides and, and a dinner over the period in, uh, in Calgary. For cancer. For cancer. And, you know, I can't, you can't fault Lance for that. And Lance had already told me he never took drugs, which, of course, he was lying. But uh, sometimes he believes he doesn't take drugs. He just saw it as a way, in his words, to do what everybody else was doing and get the job done. And we'll do it better. That's what I found out later. And so there was a kid on this trip, and he came from the Cook Islands, which is millions of miles, it's like further than Perth is from here, mm. when we're in Melbourne. And I, uh, this kid came, and he was 16 maybe, he had his old bike with him, and he sat on Lance's table at the dinner function, and the only table is a ten, and over half or two dinner, Lance looks up and he says, uh, hey kid, he goes, yeah, he said, uh, how do you get to sit on my table? He said, well, I, I raised the money. He said, what, you raised 20, $25,000 to come here? Yeah. And uh, he said, where you come from? He said, the Cook Islands, it's a long way from here. And he said, well, how did you raise the money? He said, well, I sold your armbands in um, in the market every Saturday morning. And uh, he said, how many did you sell? He said, $9,000, a dollar each. So, said, well, that's not enough money. Lance wasn't a man that wasted words, by the way, and never did. Um, even when he wrote to me, he'd just go, hey, need this, L L A. That's all he ever said. Never said, hello, Phil, how's life? Nothing, nothing. So he said to the kid, well, how would you get the rest of the money? He said, well, my granddad said, um, he said whatever the shortfall was, he'd pay the difference. And he did. And he saw me off at the airport today, yesterday, as it was, and he told me at the same time he was dying of cancer. Lance goes hmm went dead quiet in the conversation carried on with the meal I was drawing the raffle later there's a fantastic brand new Trek Madone state of the art bike at that time the Madone was brand new model of Trek and Lance had brought one with him to auction and I was the auction to raffle rather and so I went up to draw the draw the raffle and I was just on the stage and then Lance uh, walked over and he called me down he said hey The kid gets the bike. I said, What? What's his number? (laughs) What's his number? (laughs) All these people have paid all the dollars and now I've got to call this kid's number out. So that's exactly what happened. The kid rode the bike next day, finished in the front group alongside Lance. And that's the other side of Lance. And Lance, don't forget, raised $600 million for his cancer over the years. But at the end of the day, he was a cheat. is it hard but having to say? said that, is it hard to say? It is hard to say because, and in mm-hmm. fact, he doesn't like me saying it. He, he, because he doesn't believe he was a cheat. He believes he was doing what was necessary to get the job done. There's words, because and the, and the organisers have to agree because. They've left an X on the winners of the Tour de France for seven years. Well, it's ridiculous. Tour de France has a history. You can't not be a winner, but they wouldn't give it to the second place riders, which is always normal, because they knew the second place riders were drugged. Hmm. And and so that's the way of the world in that period.
1: So, do you feel as a, you know, I still don't know how I feel about it. I still, like, I, I. He's got a podcast, I'll put you on it, Lance's got a podcast and Mm. I listen to it and I enjoy
0: it and I still think... He's a very convincing talker.
1: Yeah, and I think he did amazing things and then the other side of me... But he did. Yeah, yeah, so...
0: He did amazing things, even when he he won one of his tours by only 61 seconds. Yeah. And if only Jan Ulrich had realised, Lance was absolutely bothered. And Ulrich should have won that year, but Lance won it more or less on Kidology. And he, saw, he he won it by sixty one seconds, which is a real close finish.
1: So have you spoke to him since? Have you ever? What do you? Feel? No,
0: sadly, I mean, I used to. I did a lot of these things with him, yeah. and a lot of the rides, and uh, all over Canada. We came to South Africa. We had a big deal in South Africa as well. It brought out the hundreds of people and when we went. To, when we came to the tour down under, uh, and he was the legend for the week, and he rode the race. He pulled them in, and Kevin Rudd was then the Prime Minister here. God, yes, but, he did. And, and he came, and I interviewed Kev- Kevin Rudd about Lance. I said, um, I just said, um, Premier, what about, uh, you're, you're here, but... You don't normally follow cycling. Why are you here? He said, for him. Mm. And he pointed at Lance. And, of course, Lance got a big cancer institute, got the government to cough up a lot of money. That institute's now working for, in, in South Australia.
1: So he's done so many brilliant things. Yeah. So if you if, you, if you walked in the room now...
0: I don't know what... Look, I don't know the answer, because to answer your question, I've never spoken to Lance since September the 9th, 2011. How do I know the date? Because I was with him in Toronto. Right. Uh, never seen, never emailed. He must have seen all the comment, good and bad, being made, levelled against me. Mm. But he's never met, ever contacted me. Uh, does, that, Lance, does that hurt it, uh, you, mate? Um, I'm not sure. I just don't know is the answer. Uh, I, I, I don't know what I'd say I ever saw him. I mean, he's been in the same town as me. but he, He's watched the race most, uh, sidewalk. He's never, never gone to anybody to do with the race.
1: Do you consider him the winner of those Tour de France?
0: I do. Oh, I do. Mm. Um, and it's a shame he hasn't got the titles. He believes he's won them, of course. Yeah, uh, And and you'll never... He's very proud of his seven winner's jerseys and he won't take them off the wall because as far as he's concerned, he won those races. And I think he did.
1: You mentioned Murray Walker early on. Mm. Lunch. You mentioned Murray Walker and him saying to you, um, it was my first job in Formula One, so I remember interviewing him and just being yeah. blown away by Murray Walker. And, and yeah. I didn't realise when you said that he, he wished he'd... Hadn't hung up the microphone.
0: Mm, well, I don't think he had a choice in the matter. I think they mm. phased him out, which is a great shame because the people watch well, Formula One well, well, for that's, him. That's exactly right. You know, uh, his distinctive voice, his cockups. Yeah. It's wonderful. Yeah. This guy's going for terrific round this bend. Oh, he's just crashed. Yeah. You know, they're wonderful. Yeah. And that's why people watch it, because it was insane. The commentators now are very, very, very good. I don't give a shit how many valves is in that engine
1: it's not we live in an entertainment industry yes exactly that's what it
0: says on my visa here my work visa says entertainer so entertain
1: so do you look at that now and think right I'm just gonna you know and and, and it was explained to me that uh, the the Americans I think it's
0: NBC have said to you, you you work for as long as you they want They are. I, I few, went, it, it was last is, last April, which is unbelievable. They said. Or oh, in this industry? Uh, the boss, the big boss flew to London because they've got the rights for the Premiership. So he'd come to see this match in London and he took to, came a day earlier to London. And he, he said, Could I meet him? They sent me an email and said, Yeah, great. I thought, Christ. Probably going to say when the contract's up, this is it, pal. Time to go. But
1: that's the way we uh, think in the uh, media. Of course, it <laughs> is. you get boss, you think, oh, "I'm cooked." <laughs> <here.">
0: <laughs> so I went in, lost my iPhone on the way, by the way, but I got it back seven weeks later. But anyway, I, I went in and I met him, and he was very friendly. He said, "Sit down." He said, "But well, let's have lunch," and then he said, "When are you going to retire?" Just like that, no, no messing around. When are you going to retire? I said, "Well, really, it's up to you because um, you, you've got two more years of me, uh, and then." I'll be 75 or six, so I said I'll be pretty old by then, um, and he said, no, uh, no, nah, nah. we're not talking now, we're talking into the future, he said, look, we've only done this once before at NBC, it was with the golf commentator, and we gave him this option, you give us one year's notice, and then we'll file a replacement, and I, said that's, a good end, lad. And I wow. said, that's really putting the pressure on me, um, and that's how it stands. A word of mouth, no contract. Uh, I've got to give me years' notice.
1: So, do you think back to what Murray Walker said to you, and just mm-hmm. think because you know,
0: yeah, I, well, me- media
1: moves on. But the first time you're not commentating the tour, for me as, as a <coughs> massive fan yeah. of yours, it, it won't be the tour.
0: Yeah, and, and uh, countless people said, yeah, countless, which just, is lovely. They shouted across the street, "Hey, don't retire!" <laughs> I say, "Oh, well, I'll have to one day." <laughs> yeah, but don't do it yet. Yeah, and you know, they're fantastic to me. And I'm, um, I'm very flattered. <clears throat> you see, I've got this voice, but I've got a frog in it right now, but I've got this voice, and they they called me the voice of cycling, but mm. the guy that gave me that was a guy called Stephen Phillips from Channel 9. In 1990, I was working, uh, he was a front man, and I was working at the cycling in Auckland at the Commonwealth Games. And uh, he suddenly took a link. And then when he went live, I was alongside him on the track, And he says, "Well, I'm joined now by the voice of cycling, Phil Liggett. Never heard the expression in my life, Mm. and it stuck. And it didn't just stick in Australia; it went round the world, and and it's it stayed ever since. And sadly, poor old Steve died last year. Last year, he did. a brain tumour. Yeah, very quickly. I loved his sense of humour. Uh, He was he was fantastic, and he he became a a brilliant researcher at the Games too. He looked after me because he knew the sport." Mm. <clears throat> but he's the man who, who did it, and, and I was very sad. I didn't know he'd gone till till after he'd gone, as it were.
1: So I, I mm. guess any performer, once they... For athletes, they always say, once I started to uh, not be able to perform my best is when I thought it was time to give it away. Mm. You're still performing as well as you ever have now?
0: So I was, Even this morning, I was lying in bed thinking... Well, I reckon uh, the comedy was good yesterday. Right. I'm happy. I, I analyse it because I always say to my wife, she's on watch, but she wouldn't have seen these shows, uh, not yet anyway, back home. And so she she's destined to tell me when I'm talking rubbish right. or, or forgetting names or wandering off at a tangent uh, like i can be new here. And uh, she, she said, uh, I'll let you know when it's time to get out because uh, don't don't let yourself down. And she's right but you know somehow when people only only this week i was at Mitchelton winery with jerry ryan and uh, he had a lot of important people there and just the two cycling teams the top teams olika scott and team sky were there chris Froome was there and they interviewed me totally impromptu i didn't know i was going to be interviewed because i was actually voicing the show off with you the dinner mm. came back in and then walked into an interview on stage matthew keenan was the guy that uh, jacked it all up and uh, the, the question, of course, is when you're going to retire. First question, and the answer is I don't know. I just don't know when I'm going to retire. But they say, well, why don't you just enjoy life? I said, well, but I am enjoying life. Yeah. This is not a job. This is uh, this is just being me. It, it uh, is and, you. And why should I cancel all the free tickets around the world when I'm seeing my friends in every country mm. I go to, um, and I walk off the aeroplane in Melbourne or in Sydney. I know what bus to get and which where to go. I walk up and down Melbourne, I know where all the streets are. Um, no, I, what, what have I got to give up? All I give up is, in effect, destroying my life. Right. Uh, but the the key is, if uh, if uh, I'm still in contact with the kids, despite my age, yep. I'm still in contact with the kids and I hopefully still think like they do. And the there's a young cyclists in this race, I had dinner with a few the night before the race because of the sponsor. They're treating me like I'm some god, you know, and all they want to do is to hear their name mentioned on television by me. Mm. Then they made it as far as they're concerned, which is very flattering. And, and I don't realize the power I've got because I never feel anything more than being one of them.
1: So so you're talking about that power and the last few years, and you will do a million of these, so you won't even realise it's me. I, I've done a, a sports show at a radio station here in Melbourne, Triple M, and mm-hmm. whenever we're about to get to you in the ad break to talk about the tour, the various co-hosts, I've had a, a guy that I've worked with a lot, a yep. guy called Wayne Carey here, a footballer, and I'm going to say, mate, this bloke, he, he's the best sports commentator on the planet. He's like, oh, I don't really <laughs> watch cycling. You know, why is he your favourite commentator? And I sort of explained to him. So to sit here now yeah. with you and chat about everything you've been through, but... What is the essence, and, uh, mate, you could, I've already taken up your time, this could be a 45-minute answer, but what do you reckon simply (laughs) is the essence
0: of successful sports commentary? Well, even though we've been talking for however long we've been talking, but whenever I've told you a story,
1: Mm.
0: I'm seeing the pictures of that story. I'm not just telling you words out of a newspaper. When I talk about Lance, I can see Lance sat at the table with that kid right now. And I can tell you on the left was this good-looking girl that always, her husband had paid so she could go and ride with Lance. And I can see them round the table. And I talk in pictures. And, and that's, I think, I've written five books on the sport. Um, and it, it, you just see things. I look at the television, you know, people talk about the ligatisms, you know, phrases which come mm. out. Um, I said something about the, the, the rabbits are about to be put back in the hutch. I don't write these things down the other day. They just pop out of my brain, and I, I never know what's going to come next. And then I read on Twitter, Did you hear the guy he said the rabbits came back out of the hutch? Oh, jeez, did I really say that? <laughs> you know, cause, and then this guy in America wrote a book on the ligatisms, and so he sent me a copy, he, he told me he was going to write it, and I, I turned about, did I really say all this lot? And he'd played back every tape he could find. Literally, played back and wrote down everything I'd said over the period of years. Uh, that was when I was working with CBS. And uh, <laughs> That's a and those love. books have sold incredibly well. Uh, and the people still bring them to me to sign now, even in Australia. They find them on Amazon or somewhere, you know. Uh,
1: to me, it's the elastic band. Yeah. When I hear, yeah, I want to hear the, Phil about about the to I'm, I think to myself, right, when's he going <laughs> to mention the elastic? Because it's someone's, you know, they've got break. eight meters in front, night meters yeah. in front.
0: <laughs> and so. And I used to, when I did the early days of Paris-Roubaix for CBS, I used to work with a guy called John Tesh, who was pretty much a Hollywood celebrity. He married a top tennis player there. And he was a composer, so he wrote the music for the show. We made brilliant shows, they were. We we didn't even, we just wrote words about, because on CBS we were never live, we were making a movie. Mm-hmm. And they spent they spent thousands of dollars on an opening of an, you know, the, the Paris-Roubaix goes through the, the battlefields of the Somme. And, and so we cut in all the soldiers fighting from World War One, and then we come back to the action over the cobblestones with the bikes. These movies won a lot of Emmys. Uh, best script, best comedy, best everything, you know. And um, I think it was then I got to really get into the writing bit, because I couldn't call the race live, wasn't allowed. We were making a movie, so we, we saw the segments. As the segments were produced, I put them on my computer, played the pictures, and I wrote the words to go with them. And I remember watching the guys' bikes bounce over the cobblestones, and, and I called it a roller coaster of pain. Things just came out, and and that's the way it is. A bit of a journalism, a little bit of flour, um, but yeah i have a i have a permanent picture in my mind when i sit on that little television and the monitor and the guy's back home i got this lovely 56 centimeter <laughs> in a darkened room and i'm in the sun with a 14 centimeter tv and then they say you got that wrong <laughs> well i couldn't probably see it that's why i got it wrong you know and the timekeeper holds the board up I go, what the hell does it say because the sun's on it and right. they're seeing a perfect picture back home. So but where do you call a,
1: the where do you call the tour from? You go from We're on the line. Right, you're on the
0: line on so the you're watching line. the whole event on television. Yes, because the windows are blacked out. We we can't see out. Can you see the end of the stage uh, live? No, it goes past the window, but we've got black paper <gasps> over the window. Which is crackers, but I could be in a lorry around the corner and right. I make no difference whatsoever. Okay. Because we have to see what the viewer sees. Yeah. And be, we black the windows out because we have a camera there. And if need be, they can cut into the sh- into our commentary, and sh- they'll see us.
1: Have you called anything else apart from cycling?
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I, I did all the Ironman triathlons for quite a few oh, years. Um,
1: about those Brownlee uh, boys,
0: eh? Oh, they're brilliant. <sighs> yeah, they were, I haven't done them because I've, I haven't done triathlon for a couple oh, of years. Them, but uh, I've uh, done triathlon. The Olympic distance triathlons right. I've, I've done. I didn't do it this year in Rio. Um, yeah, and I do in the in the winter. I do alpine skiing. And uh, ski jumping. Right. Ski jumping? Yeah. Have you seen the Eddie the Eagle movie with Hugh Jackman? No, I I haven't seen it, actually. I should watch it. Yeah, have a look at um, it. I might be embarrassed if I see it. (laughs) But I started commentating the year the the Olympics after he he came, and then they made standards so you wouldn't get an Eddie the Eagle again.
1: Right.
0: Yeah, but ski jumping was terrific. Uh, The ski jumpers are crazy. Mm. Uh, I mean, I remember standing on top of a ski jump to do a piece to camera. And I said to the producers back in the studio, I said, do not ask me to go any further Mm. back because another metre and I'll be going down this 120 large hill jump. Um, But then you jumped out over a graveyard. I mean, what a view for a ski jumper. You go off the end looking at a graveyard. Mm. But they're they're lovely people and they're crazy.
1: You go into Sochi with 10 a couple of years ago Mm. and saying to the boys, oh, let's do a piece of camera at the top of the ski jump because it's so foreign to this part of the world. And you actually stand up there and look down and you think... (laughs) What are these boys and girls doing? It's crazy. Now, Phil, I've taken up enough of your time. This (laughs) podcast, it it normally finishes, and the the bit I'm looking forward to at the end of this is actually getting you to have a podcast on your phone because you said you haven't got to those yet. But I've got a couple of young kids, Mm -hmm. and I always tell them, uh, the people, uh, listeners to the Howie Games know this, uh, the people that I'm going to speak to uh, and then they come up with a question Now I've got a little boy who mm. operates as the Big Penguin That's what he named himself And a daughter called the Pickle They've both sent me questions um, And I play them to you and you answer them I'm not sure if this is the Pickle or the Big Penguin But you're soon going to find out Phil If we can manage to play it Hi Phil, Big Penguin here My dad's favourite commentator is probably you And who's your favourite commentator? That's the big penguin. I just need to at the start again there. Hi,
0: filthy! Big
1: penguin. He, excuse me, he's dropped a filthy on you there. He's called you filthy, which is a very Australian thing to do. That's
0: not. A, that's all right.
1: <laughs> big penguin. Yeah, he's only five. But he's fine. the big penguin. That's so he wants opinion. to know who your favourite commentator. Yeah. Right? yeah.
0: Um. It would probably have been Murray Walker in his day. Yeah. Because he he made me watch Formula One. Yep. And and he brought the, the excitement to it. But I just admire any commentator who does a good job. Some of the new crop, I've got to be honest, I find them boring. Right. But from somebody like Murray, I, uh, might be because I'm getting old. OK. Uh, but the, the new crop of commentators know their stuff. Absolutely know their stuff. Uh, but, hey, I want somebody to entertain me at the same time. Couldn't so Murray did that.
1: The best that Vicka Hackenden can do, I think, is to take third position. No! My goodness! He takes pole position! Incredible! Well, right, I'll let the penguin know now. This is the pickle who is now just turned seven, um, and I played her a bit of the Tour de France, and she was listening to you commentate. This is what she had to say.
2: Hi, filthy pickle here. Daddy has to wear ma- makeup at work. He says he doesn't like it, but I think he does. <laughs> do you have to wear makeup?
0: And do you like it?
1: <laughs> so
0: she's got well, right to the gist of the whole TV <laughs> performance scenario The very first time, it was American TV Insisted we put makeup on yep. stop the top of my head getting shiny and damp me down and, and of course the makeup girls get to work on my face They make me look pretty good, I'll mm, be honest they do. I do, uh, Sometimes I think I should do this more often But at the end of the day uh, And I forget to take it off And I'll, I'll tell a little story We were in... Um, foster tongue in the one of the roughest pubs i've ever been in my life here in the triathlon uh, up there yes i was yeah, doing the time i went bit. up there and i put makeup on in the gents toilets and it was a real rough gents toilets and this guy came in drunk as a skunk and he was spraying everything except where it should go you know <laughs> and and he then he looked up and said jesus christ there's a man in here putting makeup on <laughs> And I said, oh, sorry, mate, uh, because it was the only place with a mirror. And, oh, God, we we got out quick, I'll tell you. Yeah, I just, and very often I forget to take it off. Right. Because after we come off air, we always want to get out of here. Yep. And jump in the car and, oh, darn it, I forgot to take my makeup off. And then you go and... So the people are very funny. They can see you're wearing makeup, but they don't say, hey, your makeup looks good. You know. But the answer is... I do like uh, some of the makeup artists, basically, on the tour, we don't have any makeup on uh, because we don't appear long in mm. the camera, but when we're doing Olympic Games, of course, you know, makeup is, the you know, makeup is at nine o'clock, and then we get to starting work, and, and, you and sometimes I look in the mirror and I think, hmm. She's made me look pretty good. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should do it more often. The wife might fancy me. <laughs>
1: I feel, uh, as I said, I've taken enough of your time. We haven't even got on to Africa and your passion for saving the rhino. We're gonna have to come yeah, back we'll, and do, we'll do another one. We'll have to do another it's episode. I dug
0: stories out here, which I thought I'd long since forgotten, but well, as th- I think I've been around too long.
1: As I said, <laughs> to sit next to you and watch enemies win and to hear your call live right yeah. next to me, not on a microphone, was absolutely brilliant. So, and
0: mate, Anna, just- let me just. So Anna is now a real friend and I've been with her in Adelaide just recently because she's the ambassador of the tour down mm. under. and we went to a big rhino function at the Adelaide Zoo and she actually uh, she bid for an auction item and spent a thousand bucks on having the zoo botanist go to her garden and explain how it should be laid out, etc. Right. Because she said her garden has been a bit rough. Now she's retired, she's <laughs> got more time to do things. And so I foolishly sent her an email after that. I said, Anna, thanks for the money you spent uh, on your garden. When you know what you're going to do, I'll come and dig it for you. I thought she'd say, yeah, right. Then she said, OK, thanks, for, <laughs>
1: thanks, Phil. I'll keep you to that. I thought, ah, what have I said? Yeah. <laughs> Phil, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having a chat with us on the Howie Games. I've really, really enjoyed it. Me too. Cheers. Phil Liggett, what an absolute ripper, champion of a bloke and very generous with his time. Long may he commentate cycling. MJ and I hope you enjoyed the episode. Life is treating you wonderfully well. Until next Thursday, peace and love.
0: And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try. If we try, try, try.
2: Listener.